Hey, Jared Dubin here. This is Thursday's audio recording of the halftime app chat with Blake Murphy from Sportsnet talking about all things Toronto Raptors. We talked about OG Ananobi's injury and development, the team's defense, Pascal Siakam's return, Scotty Barnes' development, and what the best ways are to use him, and a whole lot more. Uh, you can enjoy that here. We'll be back next week talking with Mike Prada about the upstart Washington Wizards. Uh, no show next Thursday because it's Thanksgiving, but back after that as well. Enjoy. I think we got to start with OG Ananobi, this injury. What's what's the deal here? I saw your old colleague from uh, the Athletic, Eric Kareen, had a report earlier today that he's going to be out a while. He got like some sort of hip injury in practice. What's, what, what's the deal with him right now? Yeah, so he hit the injury report yesterday. It was nothing that happened in a game. But um, to hear Nick Nurse tell it, because this is a younger team than they've had in years past, they've been doing a lot more with their practice time, and that includes a lot more contact. Apparently, his hip got banged uh, in practice yesterday. Now, Nick has not always been the most forthcoming when it comes to injury information or the most truthful, but he said today it could be, and quote, a while for OG. So I don't, uh, I don't know what the timeline on a while is, but it doesn't sound great. Yeah, I mean, especially with how well he's playing. Granted, you know, the the individual creation stuff, he's doing a ton of it, but has not necessarily been shooting all that well, like in isolation and stuff like that. But clearly taking a step forward in terms of his responsibility on offense, which was something that the Raptors were kind of talking up before last season as something that was possibly going to happen. And then he kind of had like a little bit, he took like a, a minor step forward basically last year and is taking the step this year that they had been sort of teasing last season, you know, and to have that happen now, especially something in practice, it's not even like, you know, he had something like, obviously practice is important, but it's, it's, it's less of a, of a blow if something happens in a game than if it doesn't practice. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I'll touch on the, the last part first and it's, it's, it sucks for a lot of reasons. And part of it is, you know, OG Ananobi's in his fifth year now, and it seems like he has, just some bad luck with stuff, right? Like, he's had a concussion. He had an eye poke injury. He mm-hmm. had his appendix burst during the playoff run. He had... Uh, he didn't even play in the first couple rounds. That, pardon me? He didn't even play in the first couple rounds right. because of the he, appendix. He got... And he hit the hospital with appendicitis, like, a day before the playoffs. Yeah. Um, so, all that stuff. So some off-court family tragedy stuff as well. So, he keeps having these random things kind of get in his way. And you look, and it's like, oh... Well, he's averaging 37 minutes a game, and he's now a high-usage player, and he's defending the best player on the other team. Like, maybe that's wearing him down. And then it's uh, just like a random bump in practice that does it. It feels uh, a little unfair. Um, in terms of the shot creation stuff, yeah, it's, it's been fun. And it's something that, you know, right before the pandemic, I was on a West Coast trip with the Raptors, and uh, we saw him starting to do that stuff a little bit more. The Raptors were very thinned out. Um, there was a game against Denver where he had – six steals and he was guarding Jokic and he scored what was at that point a career high 
I want to say 34, 36 points. Um, and so you started to see that a little bit, but only in glimpses. And, and then, you know, that was the story of the preseason with this team was, well, OG's getting touches now and they're going to trust him to, to create for himself. And now you look and suddenly he's a 23, 24% usage player who can, you know, hit a step back three and get into his own stuff uh, near the rim and, and to the free throw line. So um, hopefully this isn't something that derails them too long. There's also an element of like, at some point the Raptors have to get all their guys together. And that starting five that they envision together has, has only played 50 minutes so far this year already. So um, they need, they need information on that Barnes, Siakam and an OB trio, and they don't have it yet. Yeah. I mean, cause uh, Siakam had been out from the start of the year and just got yeah. back what, like four or five games ago. Um, OG, by the way, with, you know, you said the usage rate up to 23 and a half percent now, like for context, his rookie year it was twelve and a half percent. You know the the year they won the title it was fifteen and a half percent. And uh, for the people asking in the chat, uh, uh, yeah, his appendix burst literally the day before the playoffs, the year they won the title. Um, and that, I, if I'm remembering correctly, that was already the year that what was it? I think it was his, his father or his grandfather had passed away. Yeah, he he lost his father um, and also dealt with concussion stuff and like a bad eye poke that. He had to wear the like he had to wear glasses for for a game or two. Yeah, and that was all in the same season. Um, yeah. yeah. So, and then la- last year the usage rate went up to nineteen and a half percent, and this year it's at twenty three and a half percent. He's uh, taken an efficiency hit with that, but that's what what you would expect when a guy is taking on like a major creation burden for himself for the first time. Like even the last couple of years when his usage was going up a little bit it was just he was taking more shots and not necessarily doing all that much more creation, but he seems to have been handling it pretty well so far this year. Like, his turnover rate is way down, and it's just like he's missing shots that you would think he can make. Um, So it's like I wasn't worried about the fact that he wasn't shooting all that well yet, and now to have this happen, it's just it's it's such a rough break. Like you said, he's been like a snake bit player for them basically. Yeah. And it's, it's tough for, you know, obviously evaluation reasons and, and like wanting to see the team do well re- reasons, but he's also like a really good dude. And, uh, you know, it's a, he's a guy that's easy to root for and you don't like to see, um, it from that aspect either. And it, yeah. And to, just to finish out your point about the self creation, only 44% of his two point shots or two point baskets have been assisted this year. And that's down from, you know, you look at his rookie year and that was 71%. And then the championship year was 64%. So he's now creating more than half of his own looks inside the arc. Um, and, you know, he's still a pretty good finisher. He's shooting 68% around the rim. Um, it's more of those like mid-range and floater range shots that you want him learning and trying. And the effectiveness isn't just, is, just isn't there yet. And that's where some of the, you know, you see the true shooting percentage decline or whatever. That That's where some of that's coming from. Yeah, and look, it's it's not a very common development path for a guy to come in and be like super low usage, but also like a very important starting level player to mm-hmm. then eventually gradually take on like huge usage. Like the guys that you can think of that have done that, it's like Kawhi, Paul George, and Jimmy Butler. It's not that typical for guys to do that, and that's something that he's trying to do. Because obviously, like I remember writing about him near the start of his rookie year and talking to Dwayne Casey back then. And that, first of all, he had torn his ACL 
in his last year in Indiana, and they didn't expect him to be ready until like December. And at the time I was writing about him, it was like late November, and he had started the season. And like he had a minutes limit very early in the year, but then came off it, and within like 10 games was a starter and was just like exceeding expectations right away. And uh, obviously like he had a very good rookie year and like he was a really good defender basically from the beginning and has been becoming a better offensive player. It's just, it's a, it's an unusual development path, but they've also gone through something like that with Siakam where he sort of gradually took on more and more of a role in the offense and, you know, OG's development in that was going to, you know, take some pressure off Siakam who had sort of, I mean, struggled is, is probably the right word. Like he didn't like collapse under the weight of it over the last couple of years, but he definitely struggled relative to when he was, you know, the number two option behind Kawhi. Yeah, for sure. So I think, you know, you go back to, first of all, it's been funny to track those two guys where, you know, Siakam's in year six right now and OG's in year five and Siakam's a little older and came in with a higher usage college role, um, but also had like a lower low to start where he was down in the G League after those first 40 games starting and being overmatched a little bit. And Siakam's, Siakam took such big leaps, rookie year to the bench mob year, and then to the championship year, and then um, beyond that into the uh, into the championship kind of hangover year, that the question I always got, like every offseason, was like, oh, what if OG takes like a Pascal-like jump? And I had to keep telling people, like, hold up, hold up. Nobody, there's no such thing as a Pascal-like jump. Like, nobody goes from 13% usage to 28% usage over three seasons and is effective in doing that. And then OG is like doing his best to do that and be like, no, Blake, there actually is another Pascal Siakam uh, route and it's uh, it's OG Ananobi. So yeah, I think that that's an important thing. And I think even, you know, Scotty Barnes hovering around the 20% usage rate and uh, in that starting five, again, tiny, tiny sample uh, of just 50 minutes, but he actually had the highest usage rate when those five share the court together. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that says a lot about Fred Van Bleed and Pascal Siakam and, and how, you know, in Fred's case, knowing when to push and when to pull in terms of, hey, it's my time to shoot and, and the offense needs me versus I got to get others involved. And then for Siakam, I, I thought there's been a good, and, and again, it's four games and the Raptors haven't played particularly well in those defensively. But the offense with Siakam on the floor has been gangbusters. Their, their offensive rating is 117 when Siakam's on the floor. And he's really scaled back his usage, up the efficiency, and been the playmaker we saw last year, which for all the struggles that, that he's had at times, he's still pretty steadily improved as a playmaker. So, um, you know, I think there is room for OG to, to have that usage profile, even with Siakam back. Maybe not to the tune of 24%, but but in that 22 range. And I think there's potential for Scotty Barnes to still get his developmental touches in that group. It's just, you know, this, and again, to, to circle back to the OG injury, it's like, this is the frustrating part is that these guys got to play together and you got to see how it looks. And and it's not just Siakam missing 10 games to start the year or 11 games. It's that there was no camp and no preseason for him either. So if you look at like the functional time that him, Barnes and OG have played together. Well, yeah, even though those three guys are good defensively individually, of course there's some stumbling with those three playing together because they've never played as a trio together before, even in practice. Right. And it, like it would be one thing that uh it, it would be one thing if he's if he suffered the injury in like the last game of the preseason or whatever, right, right. and then he had to, you know, 
to miss the, the first 10 games of the year. But, you know, I think we saw, we see all the time that it just, it takes teams a while when they make significant changes. And that doesn't mean just roster changes, but also changes to like the alchemy of the team and who's in what role in the pecking order and whatnot, that it takes them a while to get, uh, not, not necessarily acquainted, but to get in rhythm with each other and figure out how best to play together. Like I was talking to a couple friends earlier today about the way the Knicks starting lineup is struggling compared to their bench unit. And it's like the bench unit is five guys that all played together off the bench last year. They know exactly what everyone's role is within that unit. And they're just flying around doing exactly what they did when they had success last year. The starting lineup is one guy who was hurt for a lot of the year and two new guys that didn't play with them all year last season. So it's like they're, everybody is struggling to figure out what to do. And when you add in the youth that the Raptors have in that unit, you know, and not just Siak, like Siakam, I think is the oldest guy among that group. And then it's like OG and Barnes, both still really young, under 25. Van Vliet is not old. Gary Trent is in like his early mid twenties. Like it's, it's a lot, you know? Yeah. And, and Fred is, Fred's actually like a couple weeks older than Pascal. I'm sure he'd appreciate you, uh, you flipping them because because he's like <laughs> sneaky one of the old heads on the team now already um this is a team that you know has Goran Dragic and then nobody else born after uh before 1992 which makes me feel really old um but yeah this is that that developmental stuff is important in that time together so you think of take the even take the OG Ananobi injury aside and you look at just dropping Pascal Siakam back into this group and yeah, Scotty Barnes is a guy he had no camp with, no preseason with, no game experience with. Even Gary Trent Jr. was acquired last year kind of as the Raptors decided to, hey, you know, maybe we don't really care that much about winning and maybe we're going to tweak the lineups a bunch and sit our stars down the stretch and stuff. So there's not a ton of familiarity there either. And the same would be said, you know, if Kem Birch steps into the starting lineup, it's the same deal as Trent. Or if Precious Achua steps into the starting lineup, it's the same deal as Barnes, where they haven't really played together. So, um, you know, I, I'm less worried about the Birch and Achua stuff and less worried about how Fred handles all this because Fred's starting to be that kind of lineup-proof guy for this team. But you look at that Siakam and an Barnes trio, especially when they're starting at 3-4-5 instead of 2-3-4. Like you said, this is there's a familiarity element there. And I think especially when you play as aggressive a scheme as the Raptors play defensively, where you are, you know, empowered to take risks and you're empowered to gamble and you're empowered to help and then sprint back to close out there. Well, to do that, you have to have a level of communication with the other guys on the floor and you have to have a level of anticipating your teammates and the gambles they're going to make and who's got your back from what angle and stuff. So I think, you know, we're seeing the Raptors defense struggle for a handful of reasons. Part of it is the simple stuff like, hey, you don't have a player on your team over six foot nine, so you can't grab defensive rebounds. Or, <laughs> hey, you're gambling all the time, so the opponent's at the free throw line a lot and you're playing in the penalty a lot because gambling leads to fouls. But there's also just an element of like that connectivity there that was so important to the championship team with Nurse's defense and really was at the heart of that 2019-2020 follow-up where they – um, outshot expectations prior to, to the pandemic, um, you know, that defensive connectivity and kind of implicit communication or, or anticipatory communication is is just not there yet for that trio. And, 
you know, Gary Trent is having a really good individual defensive season and Scotty's looked fine in that regard, fine to, to good and OG is OG, but you need that time together, especially without, you know, there's not a Marcus all back there protecting the rim or, or keeping guys away from the paint or communicating even. So um, that's going to take some time. And, and that's a real toll to these injuries that I think, especially early in the year and especially with young teams, you know, sometimes people look at, Hey, well, would it really be the worst thing for, you know, team X to have some, in, like Detroit, would it really be the worst for K to miss some extra games and, and be hurt early in the year? And, and Detroit slides a little higher in the lottery odds. And it's like, yeah, it would hurt. Because that's a guy who needs to be getting reps. And if there are other pieces there that are a part of the core long term, you want to start getting that familiarity and building that institutional knowledge out of the gate. And it's something that, you know, Houston's going to be going through with Jalen Green, where like none of these guys are going to be there when Jalen Green is good eventually. Um, so there's a real cost to these injuries beyond just the man games loss, I think, when you're a young and building team. The the defense was where I was going to go next with this, especially because the way that they like to shapeshift their coverages all the time, and especially this year with how aggressive they want to be to make up for the fact that they don't have like a real, you know, rim protector type, like you mentioned, it's so important that everybody be on the same page at the same time for all 48 minutes when they're on the court together. And that's not something that you can just get magically you know like it's it's got to be something where you develop that the the institutional knowledge like the spurs would say back in the day like where you know danny green would know where tim duncan was going to be just because tim duncan had been there five thousand times before and he knows exactly what's going to happen so even though you have a bunch of like individually talented defenders if they've never played together it's hard to know where they're going to be and i think that some of that was part of the reason why they struggled defensively for much of last season some of it was obviously the shooting noise some of it i'm sure was just you know playing in an unfamiliar area but yeah no no disrespect also- to paul watson jr but there's also uh hey you're starting stanley johnson and paul watson jr sometimes and stuff um personnel element in play last year too yeah that's exactly what i was gonna say like and especially because like you went from gasol and abaca to like Aaron Baines and Chris Boucher and like Chris Boucher can protect the rim on defense, but not many other areas on defense. And Aaron Baines just didn't look comfortable playing with them really at all. And now they're transitioning to a sort of different thing where it's like, everyone's going to be the same size and we can switch everything if we want to, but we can also stick one guy on one guy. We want to do that. And it's, it still allows them to shape shift like nurse likes to do but in a much different way, and that takes time. Yeah, for sure. And that's, you know, again, to, to your point, it, there's a, there are some costs to that strategy, and there's a level of you need to know where your teammate is going to be for you or, or where your teammate, you know, hey, this is a Gary Trent Jr. gamble, and, and this is the gamble he makes on the ball in this side pick-and-roll situation. And then so then if you're helping it, if you're the guy in the strong corner, you need to be ready to kind of slide over. And then Gary Trent's got to know that, okay, you've got his back there. And if I gamble and lose the strong corner's mine, and that's the kind of stuff that takes reps together. And and I know, sorry, I know I'm using like visual examples on audio platform, but um, hopefully people can kind of visualize what I'm talking about there. Now, if you're you're Nick Nurse and the Raptors, it's tough to kind of feel out, well, where is the where is the line at which the risk becomes too much or where is the equilibrium point? Because 
they are second in the league in forcing turnovers right now. And they are, you know, a pretty effective transition team in terms of, hey, can we get the ball? Can we get it and run? Can we put together some easy points? Because, you know, right now they're they're above the league median in offense. But I don't know that in the half court that's that's going to be the case over the entire year. So I think they need these, um, you know, the, the easy transition buckets that, that those steals present. And they need to be a team that is continuing to crash the offensive glass. Um, they lead the league in offensive rebounding rate, which is very counter to how this team has normally operated. So um, I think some of those gambles are an admission of, hey, the half court stuff probably isn't going to look all that great. And, and there's a willingness on their part to, you know, take some lumps on the defensive glass um, and at the free throw line to, to work that stuff out. And the defensive glass is a particularly interesting one because the Raptors have kind of punted on it in a lot of ways. And that's schematically. And then also not having anyone tall on the team. Um, they're doing a decent job, like uh, again, above the median per cleaning the glass in terms of keeping opponents uh, out of the the deep paint. Um, you know, the at-rim percentage for opponents is is only uh, 12th in the league, so that's not bad at all. Um, but the other byproduct of this, and this has been the case for, for three years running now to an historic level in NBA history, is Raptors sure give up an awful lot of corner threes, and you look back to 2019-2020, and the data was like, oh, maybe you can control the quality of corner threes you're giving up because look at the shooting percentage and then last year it went the complete opposite direction uh so i don't know that you can um and that's kind of these are kind of some of the gambles that you know maybe the raptors narrow the focus a little bit on the on this kind of stuff if um they're in a contention window like like i do think there's an element of they're a young team they're a building team they're going to try a lot of stuff and, and see what they can bend about kind of the league dogma right now about defense especially um but yeah, there's an also an element of like this stuff has some baked in trade-offs and there's there's an equilibrium somewhere and they might be on the gamble heavy side of it right now at least with their youth and level of familiarity because they're not you know again dead last in corner threes allowed uh, in terms of volume and then over this little losing stretch they're on 1 and 5 in their last 6 dead last in defensive rebounding and dead last in opponent free throw rate. So uh, the costs are outweighing the the positives, at least this last little stretch. Yeah. Uh, so before uh, we switch topics, you said a bunch of different things there that I want. Yeah, um, <laughs> so first um, on the opponent shooting, like there's not much evidence that you can control opponent shooting over a significant stretch. Maybe you get lucky and it happens for a few weeks or a few months or even a full season, but there's no real evidence that you can like just decide who you're leaving open and who's going to miss shots over like a long enough sample that it would be a true skill to do. This is something that if I didn't mention, I think I would not be allowed to be friends with Seth part now anymore. Um, <laughs> uh, by Seth's book, by the way, I know we plugged it the other day, but do it again. Uh, the mid range theory, go buy it. Triumph books. Uh, it's it's great. I'm like a third of the way through it. Just got it a couple days ago, and uh, it's it's going real well. And, and if uh, you're in Toronto and have received your copy already, uh, let me know where you got it from because mine still hasn't shown up. So I would like to, yeah, I don't know if it, there's living in Canada has some uh, some shipping delay stuff in the best of times, but especially these last two. Oh uh, yeah, the uh, the old supply chain. Um, 
And it, so um, about the, the defense and the things they're giving up and not giving up, like there are ways that you can make up for being a bad defensive rebounding team. Right. Like teams have done it in the past. Like you play super aggressive and try to force turnovers or you completely avoid fouls or you do an incredible job of contesting shots or of forcing the right kind of shots. Like you can play a system that coaxes opponents into taking a bunch of mid-range shots to make up for the fact that you're not going to get a ton of defensive rebounds. Or, you know, if you give up a ton of threes, you can at least protect the paint better than anybody in the league like the Bucks did a few years ago. And that was sort of the basis of their defensive system. But you can't have two or three of those things be bad. And that's something where when you're young, it's really hard to say, we're going to make up for this by doing that. It's just, especially when you don't have guys that have played together for a significant amount of time, it's just tough to be able to do. And working towards that and experimenting with what you can give up and how you can make up for it is part of the growth process of the team. And I think that that's where uh, the question from Xfinity Man a few minutes ago comes in, like, aren't they in rebuilding mode? I think they're more like in experimentation mode. Like, they have good players. They're not going to be a team that is like... You know, obviously last year they moved up in the lottery and wound up with the fourth pick, but I, I don't think they're going to be a team that winds up with one of like the three or four worst records in the league. Like there's just too much talent there. It's not necessarily a definite playoff team. It's more like a, you know, play in or better team that where, you know, the ceiling is probably not at the top of the conference, but the floor is not near the bottom of the conference either. So it's like they're trying to figure out what works and what doesn't, who works well together, who doesn't, whose skills sort of accentuate somebody's strengths and or, or sort of amplify their strengths and mitigate their weaknesses and things like that. I, I don't know uh, where you fall down on that, but I, I think we probably think of things pretty similarly. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. It's a case where, you know, I, I, I've been using, trying to use the term building instead of rebuilding because, you know, there wasn't like last year, it made a lot of sense in a lot of different ways to lean into that once the season went as it did, right? Like you start the season and you have this huge negative win-loss record, but all the other metrics are like, no, you're a good team. What's happening? Uh, and then once you claw back to 500, your whole team and coaching staff gets COVID. You're also playing away from home in a non-revenue season. And it's like, if you were ever going to embrace that, that was the year to do it. Now, yeah, Lowry's gone and they trade in Norm Powell for, for kind of a younger and a little different model. Um, and they don't, you know, they rent out their cap space this past summer, basically to acquire Precious Achua and, and the three years left on his rookie deal. So not splashy, kind of sexy moves here. So where are they at then? Well, I think you're right. I think it's, you know, hey, there's two things. It's, it's how do these pieces fit together? And it's how close are those pieces to being back where they want to be? And then if the answer to that question goes one way you know there are larger questions in the offseason about hey does Siakam and Van Vliet who will be 28 by the end of the year do they match the timeline of OG Trent Scotty and then is OG Trent Scotty a good enough core you know to to truly rebuild around and I I don't think the Raptors are going to have an appetite for for many lottery seasons like I, I could certainly see them if they're you know 10th in the east and it's looking like the the one two seeds are very very strong. Like they're not. It ends up being like Brooklyn and Milwaukee, and not the Washington Wizards. Um, <laughs> then maybe there's again another like ah, you know what? Fred stubbed his toe, and our biggest driver of on court success is going to miss four or five games. Like that wouldn't shock me. But that's not the goal this year. It's about like you said, finding out what 
parts of what they have this year can carry over into their next competitive window. And that's really it. Like, I don't, I don't think, like you said, this, this core can't bottom out enough short of uh, a long-term Fred injury, maybe. And I don't think they have the appetite for it as a franchise. So this is kind of the year of throw everything out there, see what is part of the foundation in terms of personnel and overall philosophy. And then, yeah, at the end of this season is when you start making those tougher decisions about, okay, who doesn't fit, what doesn't fit, and who could fit that's out there and available. Yeah. Um, so uh, before we get to these next couple questions here, and then I want to talk about uh, Scotty Barnes, so I am legally like allowed to geek out about a Florida State player. Um, you mentioned Goran Dragic. Obviously, there's been like a ton of speculation about him getting traded or waived or bought out or whatever. Uh, he's been playing behind Delano Banton for a lot of the season. Um, wh- what's the deal there? Is there any progress on any sort of is he going to play or is he going to get moved type of thing? No, I mean, nothing imminent. So there were a couple kind of key date points with the Dragish thing to watch, right? And, you know, there was there was some, which it's speculation that I find very funny as like someone who pays a lot of attention to the G League and guys on the fringes of rotations and stuff. And there were some people that were like, oh, well, the Dallas deal's there. They're just waiting for Moses Brown to be trade eligible. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm, I loved watching the OKC Blue and stuff, but I don't think Moses Brown is holding up a trade to that degree. And then it's, you know, we'll hit that December 15th date where a lot more players can get traded around the league. And then the the other one was, and this is a little in the weeds, but um, the Raptors waived Sam Becker uh, uh, a week and a half ago because him and Isak Bonga were about to have their contracts guaranteed. And the reason that was relevant to me was that that was a move they only had to make if they really wanted to get beneath the tax now. And that gives them a little bit of runway with Drogic where they don't, if they had kept Decker, they had to make a Drogic trade at some point that was cash negative to get below the tax. And now they don't have to. So they have a little more leverage here. They can be a little more patient with it. And then obviously the next date will be the trade deadline in February. Um, I would be surprised if he finishes the season on this team. I think behind closed doors, there have probably been some conversations of like, look, you're not going to play because we have Fred Van Vliet and Delano Banton and to a lesser degree, Malachi Flynn. And when Fred's out, you're going to start and apparently play 28 minutes the other night. Um, So that team still know you can play. And we're going to say all these nice things about you publicly, about how good a teammate you're being and stuff like that. And we're going to make sure that for whatever reason, Delano Banton and Justin Champagne are on our socials talking about how funny you are, uh, <laughs> which is a weird subplot to this season. Um, and then, yeah, something's going to get done. Like, like Goran's 35. He knows the score. He knows how trades work. He knows how the market works. And he knows that the longer this plays out, the closer he's to the finish line. And, and, you know, there's probably a dollar amount right now that Dragic could walk into Bobby Webster's office and say, I'm willing to leave this amount on the table. And they'd be like, you know what? That's enough for us. That that gives us the tax room to fill the final two roster spots and, and you know, use that leftover chunk of our mid-level on a multi-year deal for a young guy or something like that. Um, but I don't think Dragic is at that point. And I think that number will be smaller after the trade deadline. So um, I think it'll get resolved eventually, but not – like I'd be surprised if, if he's gone – before kind of mid-January. Um, but I'd also be surprised if he's on the 
roster past mid-February. Yeah, I mean, sometime between December 15th and the trade deadline, it seems right, like. Right, exactly. You know, like most he's, likely. He's, uh, he's, he's not going to be on this team for the entire season. I just, I don't think there's a ton of urgency on the Raptors side. And, and there will be a trade. They, like, I don't think it comes down to like, oh, we couldn't find a trade and now we got to decide if we want to wave him. Like, somebody's going to need a backup point guard going into the playoffs, you know? Yeah. Like, the the tough the toughest thing honestly on the trade front is going to be um, how do you make the salaries match with a deal that the Raptors either don't take back money for next year or are okay taking back that money for next year. So that's where the Dallas one has been a little tough. Where you know Dwight Powell probably you know he's he's a good player and he's Canadian and all, but he's very important to the Mavericks. And um, I don't know when you're already paying Ken Burch and Precious if another center in that tier moves the needle for you um and then maxi Kleber. well the raptors are already built entirely of power forwards who sometimes have to play center so um maybe you need a third team there or something like that yeah that probably makes sense and um like i'm very happy to hear by the way that goran is 35 now i would not be the oldest player on the raptors do you want to hear something that kills me about that yeah so kyle lowry was previously the player on the raptors that was older than me goran dragic is one day younger than me Oh, uh, so I would be the oldest Raptor by a day. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. I'm pretty Bad sure Gibson is older than me. So I don't think I would be the oldest Nick. Um, but, and, uh, there's, there's gotta be some nets that are older than me. Oh yeah. Yeah. on the nets for sure. Blake. No, Blake's not older than me. Um, who's your oldest guy? Millsap. Oh yeah. Millsap. LaMarcus. LaMarcus. I don't think Katie's 35 yet. No. Um, what did you, wait? So you, you said you're 35? Um, I'm 34. Okay, so James Johnson is 34. He's he's February 87, so he'd be the other one you got me. Damn right, he's three months older than me. There you go. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, before we get to Scotty Barnes, there's, I guess, not related questions, but do you guys think the Clippers and Nets experiments are fails? They've only really had two years, but they were expected to win it the first year and haven't done much, so what's your opinion? Um, I don't know where you come down on that. For I mean, the Nets, I would say, like, no. Like, <laughs> they got – KD looks like one of the two or three best players in the world. They wound up getting James Harden also. They're incredibly deep, incredibly versatile. They're going to be a title contender for as long as Durant stays this good, which, like, I don't know about you. I don't really see him slowing down no. anytime soon. I think the, the Clippers are p- probably closer just because there's more injury concern with Kawhi and we don't know what he's going to look like when he has to come back again. And they've also had their guys healthy for the first two years. And granted Kawhi got hurt in the playoffs last year, but they really blew it the year in the bubble. I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't know how you let the the nuggets come back in that series from three, one on you. And uh, baby base assassin Mitt says, you know, they don't have Kyrie. Like, yeah, the dude won't get vaccinated. Like what, what are the Nets supposed to do about that? You know, like, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's harder. It's easier to have foreseen, hey, maybe Kawhi's health doesn't hold up than, hey, maybe we enter a global pandemic and one of our three stars decides he doesn't want to get vaccinated. Um, so, yeah, the Clippers one's tough. You know, I do think they squandered it in the bubble year. And the worst part about that is the feeling here in Toronto that Kawhi walked away from a repeat um, because the Raptors did end up being pretty good that year. And you know, took Boston to a tight seven in the second round. And that was a pretty wide open year. Um, the other thing for the Clippers too, is like, it's not just the Kawhi thing. They got seven other guys on the injury report right now um, for tonight's game. So they're, they're pretty banged up all over Brooklyn. I'm with you. I don't have a lot of 
concern that a Brooklyn's decisions, you know, weren't the right ones and B that they're not going to be really, really good. Like I know Steve Nash had that quote the other day after they got kind of their teeth punched in by golden state that, Oh, they're not in that tier of those teams yet, but they're also like 11 and five with a solid net rating. And they're right around top 10 at both ends of the floor. And they've done that with not only Kyrie being out, but some injuries to Joe Harris and Claxton and, and, you know, Millsap for whatever extent you feel like he's an important part of this. So, um, you know, I don't think they had designs on playing Blake full-time starter minutes at center or playing LaMarcus 20 minutes a game or whatever. But these things happen, and they've still been pretty good around that. So um, I think the Nets and, – and then I think the other thing that the Nets have that the Clippers don't is they're built flexibly, right? Where, like, they have some mid-tier contracts if they need to make a trade uh, or they want to tweak things. They have, I believe, an active trade exception – um, that could maybe uh, allow them to do something there as well. So um, not only are the Nets better and more justifiable right now, they also have, I think, more capacity to be better than this via trade or via Kyrie finally deciding to get vaccinated. Yeah, and I mean, obviously you can't predict the second part. Like, who knows when Kyrie is going to decide that he wants to like make himself and his family safer during a global pandemic. Like, who knows? The dude thinks the earth is flat. Um, <laughs> um, regarding the other question, Dave, 2301 awards leaders, maybe I'll do one of these focus exclusively on that. I haven't done enough research or anything. There's like 97 awards. I'm like, I'm not going to go through all of them right now. Cause I want us to talk about Scotty Barnes for a little bit, but I'm acknowledging your question. Kind of want to do with something, uh, almost exclusively about that at some point. Um, let's talk about Scotty Barnes. Uh, I am impressed with you mentioned earlier when we were talking about OG, like the level of usage that he's carrying, I did not foresee that when watching him uh, at FSU. Obviously, there's not a, a huge sample of him playing there. They don't play their guys a ton of minutes generally, and they've had you know all these different wings. It's like they're printing them on an assembly line of all these you know, incredibly long defensive wings who can't really shoot. It's like they're basically running an Orlando Magic factory, um, and obviously <laughs> that it was sort of expected that he was going to wind up in Orlando and that didn't happen. But have you been more impressed with what you've seen from him on that end or on defense? Because the defense has been like, I think it's been good and it's been like as expected basically. And we were sold that like, he's going to be a really good, really versatile defender. And that basically looks like what he's going to be. But the offense, I think he's sort of doing a little bit more than I expected this early. Yeah, for sure. More impressed on the offensive side again, because the defense has been more or less as advertised. He said some, He's had some nights getting rooked, but you expect that a little bit. Um, and, and, you know, we knew he's a good playmaker, especially in transition. But the ability to self-create has been what's really stood out. And again, this is a guy, I don't think anyone really expected him to have 20% usage. He's right around or a little above league average uh, efficiency overall. And, and then you dive into the shooting splits and he's hitting well at the rim. And he's hitting well in floater range and he's hitting well on... Um, mid longer mid-range shots, which, you know, obviously you don't want him to take a ton of those when better shots are available. But for a guy who you're also trying to figure out, hey, will he eventually be able to shoot the three? The fact that he is comfortable with the pull-up mid-range shot right now from the elbows and out is, I think, encouraging to uh, his shooting projection. He's also improved as a free-throw shooter up to almost 80%. So, 
um, I think that that stuff's encouraging. And I think, you know, the biggest thing that stands out to me watching him is kind of the, you know, whether you want to use feel or processing speed. But um, there's a play that stands out when they were playing the Bulls where he kind of catches the ball with a head of steam in semi-transition. And he's got Vucevic dropped back into the paint. And I don't think he looks at Vucevic or the rim the entire play and gets into like a little quick stop floater from just below the free throw line. And, you know, Vucevic is frozen a little bit because one, Scotty Barnes has a head of steam. You're going to protect the rim. And two, I don't think he thought that that skill level was there to, you know, catch the ball on the fly and pull up quick with, with a, a fairly smooth shot. And in that play, you know, he looked off a guy in the corner and, and like kind of used his eyes to, uh, you know, deter the maybe weak side help from coming in. And, and he processed a number of things. There, there are some other ones, too, where there's one against Al Horford where, you know, you can kind of see him going through his progressions like a quarterback where it's like, okay, here's the dribble handoff opportunity. Nope, not there. Here's the weak side kickout opportunity. Nope, not there. Okay, I've got space. Horford's long, but he's dropped back too far. One dribble into a pull-up. And, and you can kind of see that happening for him. Uh, in a way that's really encouraging, I think, for like, hey, long term, is this guy going to be able to layer skills on top of skills um, in a way that kind of raises the overall package? Yeah, I think the processing speed and ability is really important for the way that they want to sort of share the creation distribution between their guys in the perimeter. Like it's it's not a it's not like their offense when they had quad where one guy was going to be carrying the significant majority of the burden of creating most mostly for himself. Kawhi was not, you know, a super high level passer yet in Toronto. He, I thought took pretty big steps in that regard the last couple of years. Um, but having another forward that can do that, like Pascal is a good passer. Fred Van Vliet's a good passer. OG, I'm sure we'll, we'll get there. Like right now he's focusing on adding the creation for himself type of stuff. And, you know, he can throw some good passes. He's not like a high level. I don't think, passing processor just yet but he's a super smart player and obviously knows the way defenses work i would imagine that that will come with time but having a rookie who's already good at that that sort of works in the assembly line with those guys is is really important and like that was sort of the thing that i thought we were going to see from him for the most part offensively i thought it was going to be like making the right passes keeping the line moving hitting the glass getting out in transition and being able to do more individual stuff, I think, has been not necessarily a revelation, but at least a little bit surprising to me. Yeah, and I, I think it says a lot when, you know, some of his play types, you get into that stuff, and it hasn't been, some of them haven't been crazy efficient, and a lot of the work is getting done kind of on offense rebounds and in transition. But I think it's a good sign when Nick Nurse, who generally is fairly critical of players um, publicly or you know, can be at times. And he's like, hey, no, my issue with Scotty here is that, you know, I think this was after the Brooklyn game where I was like, no, I, I don't like that he only took seven shots in this game. I'd rather him take the 19 that he took in the Cleveland game right before it. And that Cleveland game, he was not at all efficient. Um, but process-wise, Nurse is encouraging him to be even more aggressive because I think they like what they've seen from it and, and what it says you know, my thing with Eric Green uh, when we were counterparts at The Athletic on, on our podcast there, you know, going back to going back a couple years, the thing with OG earlier in his career was 
I always thought his field goal attempts was a good barometer of how well the offense was functioning that game because, you know, when the offense was moving and swinging really well, the ball tended to land with OG to finish possessions. Um, and I wonder if we're going to see that a little bit with Scotty this year too, where, you know, the nights that he has low possession totals, um, you know, maybe it's, hey, he, they didn't run anything for him and he got his stuff in transition and, and on garbage stuff and that's it. But the nights where he's carrying a bigger load of the offense are the ones where you look back and it's like, oh, yeah, that's a, that's a sign that the ball was moving around pretty well and guys were sharing the responsibility. You even look to, you know, that Portland loss was was not a good loss, but their offense was awesome in that game. And that was another one where Barnes had, um, what do you use? He used 20 offensive possessions in that game. So that's another one where the offense is clicking and he's got a big role. So I think... I think that's something to watch for there. And then, you know, to kind of bookend the conversation with uh, the, the OG and Siakam fit is the more of that stuff he can do, the more he can be a, a self-creation threat, the more that opens up that kind of more natural skill he has for playmaking and keeping the line moving, like you said. Um, and I think there can be, uh, you know, an additive effect there. Yeah, I mean, I think a good thing with the shooting, like obviously the aggressiveness will come and go, but I think that when he decides he's going to shoot, he's not tentative about it, and that's a good sign. Like he's not in his head like, oh, I'm not a good shooter, so I can't take any shots. Like you said, he's he's willing to like take pull-ups in rhythm off the dribble, and he'll take threes. Like He's not taking a ton of them, and I would imagine as he gets better at that shot, he'll get more confident and put more of them up. But he doesn't, like to me at least, and obviously I can't watch every game, like you can, but in the games that I've seen them, like, I don't think he looks tentative. Granted, he's not taking a ton of threes, but I, I don't think that it's because he's, like, scared of taking them, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And he's, yeah, he's 2 of 11 on threes, but um, it's not an unwillingness to take them so much as, you know, A, they don't get him the ball above the three-point line as the clock's winding down and putting him in bad positions, um, and B... I think he's just a little more eager to, hey, can I create an advantage somewhere rather than taking this shot that right now is a low-value proposition. So uh, I'm sure they'd like him. Like, he's only taken two three-point attempts over the last six games. I'm sure they'd love that to come up just a little bit so he's getting those reps and getting that comfort level. Um, But also in two of those games, he had, you know, six-plus free-throw attempts. And I think they'd, they'd, you know, given the choice between the two, they'd take the free-throw attempts and they'd take – the assists over that three-point shooting. So um, it was actually very sad in the Portland game. He had had five consecutive games with exactly four assists. Um, so him having uh, only two, could have been any number. It could have been 10, and I would have been disappointed. Um, but yeah, I think that's where they're at with him. They, they want him to be more aggressive, both as a means of scoring and also opening up his, uh, his playmaking. That the, uh, the four assist thing is like there's a, a baseball player um, – Chris Davis. Yeah, there. Chris Davis with a K in his batting average, right? Yeah, I think he hit 247 like four years in a row, which yeah. is like, that dude is definitely a 247 hitter, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, and like, it's not like that's like a nice, easy number either, right? It's, it's, that's a really random number to, to land on. Yeah, like, especially in baseball when you have so many at bats. Like, yeah. It's, uh, it's strange, but, um, with with Barnes defensively, what do you think is sort of the best 
I'm trying to think, like, what is the best way to use him defensively? Like, should he be their rim protector? Should it be that they're switching all the time? Should it be where he's, like, you know, an OG style? Like, you can put him on the best opposing, you know, big wing type? Like, what do you think is the best use of his skill on that end? Yeah, I think right now it's a lot like their offensive philosophy where it's a lot of figuring stuff out and trying different stuff. Um, I think so far I would say he's been better defending the interior than the perimeter. And I think some of that is, you know, there are fewer decisions to make and fewer reads to make when you're there maybe. Um, but also he doesn't have, you know, like I know he he's roughly OG size, but OG has like, for, for a guy his size is a pretty incredible like hip flexibility and rotation and lateral quickness and stuff. So um, I don't know that Scotty's there yet um, body and functional athleticism wise uh, in terms of defending the perimeter. And that's not to say he's not good at it, but when you're deciding who he's going to guard and who OG is going to guard, um, you know, I, in a tight possession, I'd probably have OG on the perimeter. So, um, you know, you could make the case that maybe he should be getting comfortable in more of a centerish role if they're going to, start that five-man unit when everyone's healthy. And I don't mean like, hey, he's got to go guard Joel Embiid and Nikola Jokic. I just mean he's the guy whose assignment is help rim protection sometimes. Right. Or, you know, if someone's going to – if you're playing drop coverage in pick and roll and someone's going to be dropping instead of switching, you know, maybe you get him some reps doing that and challenging shots in the floater range. Um, because I do think that that, you know, team-wise, and this isn't a Scotty thing, it's a, it's a roster construction thing, that's where – there's a limitation defensively. And um, I like Cam Birch and think he's a, he's really solid, but he's also a six foot nine center. Who's not, you know, super bouncy around the rim either. So, um, you know, for Scotty's long-term development and for what this team sees vision wise defensively, I think they're going to try a lot of stuff and they're going to be switchy and they're going to give Scotty a lot of different responsibilities. But I do think when healthy, there's something to, Hey, maybe, you know, when we're at the portion of games or the portion of the season where we need to get wins, you know, maybe we narrow that just a little bit. Yeah, and I think it also just fits with, like, OG, you want him on the best perimeter guy. Pascal, you want him to be able to take more chances than he would be able to if he's the backline help guy. And exactly. Scotty has, you know, the, the agility and the length to be able to do it. So I think it just sort of makes sense from that perspective. OG also is, like, is built like an actual truck and has probably, <laughs> like, 15, 20 pounds on Barnes at this point. Um, I, I think also center-wise, like I think I might be more intrigued to see what that might look like for Barnes on offense, where if he's like the screen and roll guy and sort of making plays as the short roller, it's not something that they're doing a ton of. Like I've seen some of it, but I think that that would be really interesting in sort of like the the Bruce Brown, Terrence Mann, Biggie Small role. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think you know part of that is the shooting limitation. Part of it is... He just kind of thrives around the dunker spot anyway with the offensive rebounds and the garbage stuff and um, tipping balls and keeping them alive and stuff. So um, I think they're uh, I think you're you're on the right uh, you're on the right track there for sure um, in terms of what that role looks like for him. The the big thing that he'll need to sharpen up a little bit there is he's got to get better as a screener. And there's a good example of this from the Portland game the other night. I don't know if you saw it down the stretch, but. Uh, the Raptors had a sideline inbounds play where Barnes ended up turning the ball over on the drive. And it was the old, they've, they've used this a couple times. It's a Nick Nurse special. It's a inbound to the center at the elbow, fake dribble handoff into a drive. Mm -hmm. And it was the old Jonas Valanciunas catch them off guard play where like 
who in their right mind is thinking the Raptors are going to have Jonas Valanciunas attack on a, on a clutch sideline out of bounds. And Barnes did it, and the drive part of it was good, but like he didn't come close to to pinning his guy with the screen part of the DHO. Um, and so I think that's, you know, that'll be the challenge for him. Like he's strong and he's big, but he's much more, he's much bigger through the shoulders than he is in the lower half. And, you know, screening takes some time to learn. That's not an easy skill. Um, and I think if he's going to play more of a five role on offense, then uh, that's, that's where he's got to come up. Yeah, I would agree with you. Uh, last thing here before I let you go. Uh, Raptors are seven and eight right now, slightly positive point differential, doing a little bit better on the road than they are at home. Um, right now, 10th, or I guess technically tied for ninth with Boston in the Eastern Conference, but a couple teams behind them that were expected to be really good this year, Milwaukee and Atlanta, a couple teams ahead of them that were not expected to be that good, you know, Washington, Cleveland, maybe even Charlotte. I mean, is, is that sort of where you see them in like the, the seven to 10, the play-in range for this season? Yeah, exactly in that range. And I, and I think I picked them to finish 41 and 41 before the season, which uh, I, I think the only the only win total choice that's more of a cop-out than 41 is 42, because then you can be like, well, I said they'd be over 500. Um, <laughs> so I, I, it felt a little cheap, but also I thought that this was a team that, you know, if things go well, they can finish as a top 10 defense and they'll be a really good transition offense and they'll struggle in the half court. And that can get you to about 500 with how tough and gritty they play and how annoying they are. Um, there's some real injury risk where, you know, I think OG Pascal and Fred, if you lose one of those guys, and especially if you lose two of them at any point, that's tough to overcome for, for that team as constructed. Um, and I don't think there's like, never really thought there was like top four seed upside there. Um, but I think, yeah, they're in that seven to 10 mix. You could expand that to a seven to 12 mix based on how the season's gone so far and, and who you think might slide. Um, but yeah, I think they'll be in the, in the playoff play in range rather. And that's a, that's a good spot for them to be in when, you know, Fred and uh, Fred and Pascal and Kim Birch are, established but this is a really young team like the average player on this team coming into the year was 25 years old and was entering their third season in the league that's a young team um functionally and i think they're one of the youngest in the league by average age and i'm sure if you if you strung that out by you know uh, minutes weighted they're going to come out even younger and less experienced so if you can be even acknowledging that a couple of these guys have been around for a while um, if you can be around a 500 team when you're, you're that young and you're trying a lot of new stuff and um, you're giving all this responsibility to a rookie, I think that's a, that's an okay spot to be in. Yeah, they are uh, sixth youngest in the league in minutes weighted age, tied with the Cavs and sandwiched between the Timberwolves and Rockets. They're 24 and a half years old. Uh, obviously, that'll go up with Pascal back and playing significant minutes, but it's not like it's going to go up, you know, by two years and all of a sudden they're the, you know, 16th young, youngest team in the league. But that's where I'm at too with them, you know, in that seven to whatever range basically. And I guess the, the last thing I was going to say is like, what's the scenario that happens to get them to that, you know, top four or five range. But like you said, it, it might, it, it might just not exist. Yeah. That's the tough one, right? Is like, okay, well, do you need to get off of one of Siakam or Van Vliet this off season? for someone more timeline appropriate does is it just a matter of scotty being you know even more than than we expected heading into this year um is it is there 
you know, kind of a, a tweak trade where the pieces fit better. And then the other one is, you know, say they make the play in and, and lose the play in, or say they, you know, are around the periphery of the play in and decide that that's not for them this year. You know, another lottery pick, given how this team has identified and developed players, maybe helps you there too. And you're not going to get the lottery fortune to jump seventh to fourth too often, um, probabilistically. Uh, and I certainly don't think that's going to, you're going to double down with like, if you're 11th or 12th in a lot of odds and end up that high, but you know, stranger things have happened. And, and even giving this front office a shot at someone in the 12 to 18 range is that seems like a pretty decent weapon with how they've, how they've hit on just about everything other than, you know, maybe Malachi Flynn, depending on how that goes. And, I'm sorry to do this to you right after lavishing play, praise on a Florida State guy, but, you know, the big miss on Dewan Hernandez in the second oh, yeah. of the year. What was he, like the 58th pick? Or 59th, whatever? yeah. Yeah, and uh, he didn't play his final year. He got sus- uh, suspended. It was, yeah, and then uh, he spent most of his NBA rookie year hurt, so. Yeah, what are you going to do? Uh, anyway, that is Blake Murphy. Blake, thank you so much for doing this. You can find him um, Sportsnet, right, all on. Yep. Uh, yeah. Big, big TV guy now. Writer, you got the sh- the the radio show. What's not? It's uh, I-, I don't know the stations in Canada, but yeah, it's a uh, Sportsnet 590, the fan. If you're here and uh, Sportsnet590.ca, I think, or Sportsnet.ca/slash 590. I should know that. Um, can you listen to it uh, in America? Or is yeah, that yeah, you can listen to it in America online, and then it's also like the episodes get released as podcasts as well. Oh, so. there you go. Make sure yeah. you listen to that. You want Raptors coverage? You got to be following this dude on Twitter too, Blake Murphy. ODC. What does ODC mean? I uh, like to know this. So this is appropriate now that my job requires me to know other sports as well, not just basketball. Um, the very first blog I had was a baseball like analytics blog called the On Deck Circle, and ah. Blake Murphy was taken on Twitter. So I went Blake Murphy On Deck Circle. There you go. Um, Wish it was thanks. a better story for you. Yeah. Well, you can pretend it as a a better uh, acronym for something else. But yeah, I'll think of something better. Yeah. <laughs> One day, Canada. I don't know. Don't 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 uh, don't let me choose it. But anyway, <laughs> Blake, Blake, thank you so much, man. Really appreciate you. Uh, back next week. There's going to be one of these on Tuesday, talking Wizards with Mike Prada. And uh, don't think there's going to be one Thursday because it's Thanksgiving. But uh, thanks for listening, Blake. Thanks for doing this. Uh, appreciate you. See you guys next week, Blake. Hopefully, see you at a game at some point. Yeah, I would love that. Uh, Bing bong, you know. I got to get down to New York. <laughs> yeah, the the Knicks probably need some help, Bing bonging at the moment. But that's a, <laughs> all right. A, see you, man. Thanks for having me on. Have a good one, man.